I have met James Shaw, our central green candidate, on a few occasions, and he seems like a really nice kind of guy to me. So before he gets too busy in the race up to election time, I wanted to have a chat to him to find out what led him into the world of politics and what is really important to him. Hi James, welcome to B-Sides on Access Radio. Hi Laurie. Great. It's great to be here. Good, good to have you here. Thanks for making the time. How did you start in your career with sustainability? How far back do you want to go? Just for an example for our listeners, what was something that you worked on specifically that they, they can understand the kind of work that you do? Sure. So uh, when I was at um, Pricewaterhouse in London, um, I was working on what is the sustainability strategy for that firm. Right. And it was because they'd noticed that a number of their clients were really getting into this kind of area. Bizarrely, the large oil uh, companies, so Shell and BP, especially Shell, mm. back in the mid-90s, you know, after the, there were a couple of really big disasters that they, uh, public relations disasters right. that were sort of related to their work in Nigeria, and they also wanted to sink an oil platform called the Brent Spa. Right. I think I've got strings of that still yeah. floating around. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. right. So that they... You know, they they had these huge kind of errors of judgment, really. Mm. Um, and uh, they said, OK, well, clearly we need to get on top of this because the backlash around the world was huge. Mm. And so they started, uh, they both started investing in renewables, but they also started thinking about how do we act as, you know, citizens, as organisations, not just kind of focused on doing our business and so on. And uh, because they were moving in that direction and starting to think about cleaning up their act, right. they also started to require the organisations that they were working with to, to clean up their right. act as well. And at the time, Pricewaterhouse was the auditor for right. and doing a lot of you know consulting business for Shell. And uh, Shell turned around one day and said, well, you know, if you're going to work with us, you need to clean up your act too. And this came as quite a surprise to um, in this I bet, yeah. <laughs> who, who have been almost in control themselves of their own destiny for for a long time. Yeah, well, I think that's that's kind of been the thing with large businesses mm. is this kind of masters of the universe mm. kind of you know mentality. And I know a lot of them still have that. But the the late nineties were really a sort of a period I think where the consciousness and a lot of large organisations started to shift, mm. um, and they realised that actually they were part of a society yeah uh, and that they had a license to operate that you know could be taken away um and so they started to change their behavior so the work that i was doing was kind of saying well okay so you've got a large accounting and um consulting firm what does the sustainability agenda actually mean for uh for us and so one of the pieces of work that i did was to look at to do the very first sustainability report for uh, pwc right. in the uk and we didn't really have much measurement systems in place. So oh, we were kind of going, okay, well, what, what, what on earth is our impact? And so we found a few really interesting things. We found that we had more people in the air at any one time wow. than any other <laughs> civilian organization, right? So our carbon emissions from air travel were huge. Wow. Yep. In addition, we had the largest private vehicle fleet in the United Kingdom, right? In the sense that virtually every consultant had a company car, car right, yep. to go visiting their clients and so on and so forth. And none of those had... There was no kind of decision-making around the fuel efficiency or standards right. or anything like that. We also found out that we were the largest um, paper user uh, in, in the UK. 
And so we thought, okay, well, it, those are only three points of data, right? That, that, they were just sort of a, a very quick and, and dirty investigation into what the information that we had available. But that's telling us something. Right. You know, that actually this, this we could do, be a pattern. That's right. That could be a pattern. Maybe yeah. we need to dig a little deeper. And and we did. And so, um, you know, PwC has been doing a sustainability report ever since. Right. And has, you know, progressively gotten deeper and deeper and deeper. And they now actually... Um, you know, very involved with the World Business Council on Sustainable Development. They've got the world's largest uh, kind of advisory service around environmental, um, you know, consulting and and so on. Um, and by no means perfect, um, but a I don't hell know of that anything. Yeah, yeah. I don't know that yeah. anything really ever is. <laughs> well, no, it's not. Yeah, and, you know, but I I am for perfection. Good, good. <laughs> we need you to be, James. Um, and so then, talking about well, getting close to perfection. So. In New Zealand, you are working with the Hikurangi Foundation. Um, what is it about working with them that makes good sense to you? The Hikurangi Foundation is here to support social enterprises to get off the ground. Um, and this is a sort of a fairly new sector mm. in New Zealand, but it is quite well advanced in um, Australia, right. Canada and the United States, the UK and other parts of the world. And social enterprise is basically trying to achieve a social and or environmental outcome, but using a more commercial model to do it. Right. So in New Zealand, uh, you, you know, things are fairly black and white. If you're, you know, a commercial organisation, you're in it to make money. If you want a social environmental um, outcome, you tend to be a charity and you rely on grants and, um, you know, donations and so right. on. So this kind of blends the two models. It says actually there are ways of an organisation being financially sustainable mm. Uh, which doesn't rely on handouts all the time, especially in an environment like we've got at the moment where a lot of that's been really squeezed. That's right. And uh, you can kind of do good all at the same time. So there's a whole range of different organisations. Um, but if I'm thinking about what does a sustainable economy look like, I think that social enterprise as a sector gives us a really good clue as to what the future can look like. Great. That's exciting. And I must say that I am talking to a lot of the social enterprise groups around, mm. and they're definitely the ones with a big sparkle in their eye too, sure which are. is yeah. really also very exciting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, no, it's a it's a growing sector, mm. and you can see there's a huge amount of um, of of kind of that creative and entrepreneurial kind of spark. Um, there's a huge uh, movement of young people into that uh, into that sector. Um, and, you know, this idea that actually if you want to, you know, you don't want to be kind of constrained by a charitable model and at the same time you want to be doing good in the world, well, here is a perfect uh, vehicle for, for um, doing it. Exciting times ahead. Yeah. That's good. Now, I didn't realise, and uh, maybe because you, you're uh, so well presented but you didn't give me the the, uh, the unshaven version, yeah. but... Um, you're a born and bred Wellingtonian. I am. Where did you grow up? <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I say that I grew up in Arrow Valley uh, because we moved there when I was about 15 or 16. Okay. And that, to me, was when I grew up. Right. Okay. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's fair enough. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, we lived in – before that, we lived in Vogeltown for many years. Um, and the first kind of half dozen years of my life or so, we were actually up the coast in Waikanae. Oh, cool. Okay. Yeah. But you're definitely a Wellington boy. I am. Yeah. went to Wellington High School. Great. Victoria University. That's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. So – was there anything about your family upbringing that was influential to, to where you are at today? 
uh, deeply. Yeah. So um, my mother nice. uh, raised me by herself. Mm-hmm. She's a teacher. Uh, and she taught uh, history and social studies. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, she was a, a member of the PPTA right. union, uh, for many, many years and was on the national exec. And so I sort of grew up in a, a you know, not not a you know party political environment, but in, a, in an environment where politics and the implications of politics were, you know, pretty keenly felt. So that did affect my sense of kind of social justice, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um and going to Wellington High School as well uh, was, uh, you know, surrounded by, um, in an environment, I think, where uh, being interested in the world and what was going mm. on was uh, particularly important. So, yeah, yeah that, right. was, that was formative. Was it as, was Wellington High, was it as, I don't know if diverse is the right word, but as open-minded I, as it is now? I, I actually think it is more, more open-minded now than it was when I was right. there. And I find that hard to imagine. You know, it was, it, 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 I mean, I think, I think I remember that when I was there, there were 79 spoken languages. And... Uh, wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And it was a really um, quite radically liberal... Uh, school, and it was actually great um, preparation for university because mm. they 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 didn't have that kind of command and control uh, mindset that a lot of schools, you know, that no. are sort of traditional schooling has. And so, you know, you kind of learned that if you wanted to achieve something, you kind of needed to pony up. <laughs> there was only one person yeah, that right. was going to make that happen. Yeah, that's yeah. right. And so it, it right. did. I think it sort of t- you know taught a sense of personal responsibility. Um, which, you know, and again, going to university, it's like, well, if you don't go to lectures, you don't learn anything and then you fail your exams, you know. So it, it, it sort of, it was a good kind of entrance into that. Also, in your childhood, was there something that really had an effect on you that, that made you want to make change? Yeah, well, I, you know, before I said, um, how far back do you want to go? Yeah. <laughs> well, when I was 12. Right, gorgeous. <laughs> I, I, I showed up to class one day and, you know, at the beginning of class, there's this kind of hubbub as everybody's, you know, kind of coming together and they're talking about what they saw on TV last night and, you know, all of this kind of thing. And, you know, I was quite a uh, naughty kid in class. So I, w- I, I was always talking right. at the back of the class with my kind of circle of mates. And I noticed at some point that the class had gone very quiet and that the teacher was talking. So I turned my attention to what he was saying. And the first words that I heard was, countries go to war over this kind of thing. And it sort of grabbed my attention. Well, And it was uh, the morning after the Rainbow Warrior had been sunk in Auckland Harbour. Well, and that moment and the aftermath of that was where I suddenly started paying attention to beyond my little world to what's going on in the world. And because the, you know, the bombing of the Rainbow Warrior was a, I mean, it was an extraordinary moment. You know, it was a really, the idea that, you know, a country that was technically on our side would send secret agents to bomb a ship in our harbour and that that ship was doing kind of good good work. things. uh, Was outrageous you know mm-hmm. and and is outrageous um and i'm finding myself you know like i'm getting hairs on the back of my neck standing up yeah um but it was mm. i think because of that i sort of started understanding you know about nuclear testing and about whaling right. and you know so I, the series of issues that that was all connected into and i you know joined up with greenpeace as millions of people did as a direct result of that um and uh and that was kind of the beginning of my engagement with um, 
you know, environmental matters. Well, I don't love this topic, but I love it that there was a point in time that's so clear for you. Yeah. 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 Um, so then what about heroes? Have you had any heroes in your past and, and why have they been important to you? Yeah, you know, part of me is um, reluctant to um, answer it because I don't believe really in kind of that hero leadership. Right. Nice. Sort of model. Mm-hmm. And, <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> so this uh, this is, you know, could sound trite. I, uh, my mother is a hero to me. Yeah, cool. Uh, in the way that she... You know, I think what I realise now, because once I got past my grumpy teenagers, <laughs> uh, sort of realising, you know, what she had given up in her life uh, for me and for my upbringing, um, and also her the values that drove her. I mean, she is, yeah. she's has an extraordinarily strong set of values that also she's inherited from you know her growing up. Um, David Longy, right, was another one, uh, and he was a an extraordinarily, um, you know, he had huge flaws and huge, um, you know, strengths as well. And, you know, what he did uh, leading the country through the period of the post-Rainbow Warrior and the nuclear free and so on was tremendously inspiring to me. And And that, I think, in many ways was also where I kind of started to clock that actually you can make a difference in politics via politics and in fact some things can will only change as a result of things that are happening in the political sphere so I did that was one thing and um, Martin Luther King is another hero of mine and one of the great moments of my life was I was in Atlanta Georgia for a conference and I went to the memorial um, and his uh, there's this long um, kind of artificial like a pool a sh- sort of a shallow pool and a you know a slab at the end um, with an eternal flame on it. Right. And it says, "Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last." And I sat by that pool for the better part of half a day yeah. in sort of baking hot Georgia sun. Um, and um, that, to me, also is one of those moments in my life where, you know, sort of the path became really clear. Nice, James. That's really good. I was there. I have to go there myself, I think, now. Yeah. I would recommend it to yeah. anybody. Mm. You know, to, you know um, Martin Luther King was an extraordinary person because he didn't just um, emancipate in many ways the black community in the United States, but also he freed white people in the United States from having to be the oppressor, from having to fulfill that right. role. And it showed that you know through the path of nonviolence, um, this notion that there was another way of resolving really intractable problems mm. by taking a, a higher ground, you know, more inclusive path and reaching out to the other side. Um, and um, I just think he was, an, an, again, an utterly extraordinary man. Yeah. And, you know, like all of these people, not without his flaws. No. Um, but to me, it's kind of good that these people have flaws because it just shows that they're human like all the rest of us. Yeah, how, how that real we all are. any of us can step into a role like that. That's right, James. Good. I like it. Mm. You've been overseas for a while. Why did you choose to come back to Wellington? Three things. 
uh, living in London, which is an incredible place, mm-hmm. um, I felt like I was getting old fast and going to die young. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so a, slow, a lot of it, slow that down. Yeah, yeah. there's the quality of life sort of diminishing returns over the age of thirty. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was one reason. Two, I wanted to be around. You know, my um, my mother retired a couple right. of years ago, and uh, you know, I want to. I was missing my family. I'm missing yeah. spending time with my family. Uh, and the third reason is that I wanted to come home and run for parliament, and it's hard to do that from London. It is brilliant. Mm. Lucky us. Just a little bit about our home city here. What do you, what do you see Wellington's strengths and opportunities are that we we could be celebrating more? Oh, that's an interesting one. I, I actually think that we're pretty good at uh, celebrating. You know, some of the things that we are particularly good at, especially around you know creativity and enterprise. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, this is a tremendously entrepreneurial city, and every street in you know downtown has got some little hub of you know, um, entrepreneurs, whether they're social entrepreneurs or a bunch of geeks turning out the next kind of cool app or, you know, designers and, you know, people like yourself. Coffee, like, coffee brewers. Oh, my and, God. You know. <laughs> yeah. um, and, uh, and, and so, and that, and I, and I think that we, we do celebrate that. And, and I do think we want to encourage more of it as well. Mm, mm. Um, the, uh, I think... I don't think that we stop to acknowledge what a beautiful city this is nearly often enough. Enough, right. And I know that there's, you know, you can't beat Wellington on a good day, and, yeah. you know, that kind of slogan. But every time I kind of take a step back and I look at the sort of the amphitheatre of the harbour with the hills on every side and, the you know, the, the harbour in the middle and the sparkling city and yeah. the, the beautiful old Victorian and Edwardian houses around the hillsides – Having travelled to as many cities as I have around the world, there are just very few that are as gorgeous as this one, and I and I I think that we take it for granted as we often do. you do when people you know you live in a place. I, all my Italian friends who live in you know Venice or Rome, yeah. they don't notice that they live or Venice and Rome. You Fair know, a enough. lot of them, yeah. and I'm like, yeah. guys, <laughs> <laughs> look around. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I think that we're a bit like that as well, and I and I and I think that we need to just pay a bit more mm. attention to that. I, I I so agree, and it's it's always breathtaking coming around, even oh. on the motorway, and yeah. and seeing that city ahead. And I love the kids really get that; they yeah. just get really excited yeah. every time they come around the corner. Yeah, and and when you say, you're talking about your kids, mm-hmm. I notice that the, the you know the younger generation here do really appreciate it as well. And, uh, and and they and they all kind of get behind it. There's a real and, and it's I think it's really great that um, you know younger people are sort of engaged that way and aware of their uh, surroundings like that. The other thing that I really love about Wellington is um, skateboarders. <laughs> Go, James. Well, <laughs> yeah, you know, you're right. I have never <laughs> been to another city anywhere in the world right. where skateboarders use main streets to get down. So if you go down Cuba Street or Willis Street or even Brooklyn Hill, they're, come, they're, 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 <laughs> they're on the roads, you know, next to the cars. And part of me thinks, you know, that's insane. You're fearless. Yeah, fearless, <laughs> crazy, whatever. But it's just cool, you mm. know. And it, and it, I think it, it just sort of, that's part of that quirky character that we have is that, yeah, hey, it's a flat that, surface. It's a road. I'm gonna. That's how we. That's, that's how, how we, we get roll. around. Yeah, yeah that's, that's right. right. Yeah. Nice, thanks, James. And I love it that you're able to give us that perspective from seeing, you know, around the world and noticing these things. So good, thanks. 
also, now I'm just going to ask you a couple of big questions, but I have this saying, like sometimes I have these ideas all the time and I believe really strongly in them. And I've started saying to myself, would you go to the grave for this? Because it means it's a really important thing to me. What is the thing that you would nearly, I'll just say nearly for you, nearly go to the grave for? I let, let me rephrase it. Yeah, I, 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 I would that. die happy <laughs> if I and you know the people who I work with could guarantee that we will be able to make it through the resource crunch that's coming in this century and maintain our quality of life. That we can figure out how to get past the hump through the squeeze that we're uh, that we're facing at the moment, because the I got to say the trend. It's not looking all that flash. It's looking like a really uncomfortable Time. century. Yeah. And, you know, I know a lot of people say, well, last century was no picnic, right? And they're right. Um, but I don't think it's anything compared to what we're likely to see, you know, sort of mid-century here. And we've only got a couple of decades. The things that we do now are going to shape the lives of your children, mm. your grandchildren, you know, and, and so on. These are people, you know, who who are close to us. Yes. And, you know, you and I might not be around to see the worst of it, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try and do something about it. Yes. And so just to be a bit clearer for our, our audience, we're talking really about the – you're talking about climate change in this particular in- instance? Primarily about climate change. There's yeah. actually – there's a whole series of things, mm. and climate change is just the earliest – it's like the clear and present danger. And right. there are other ones – that are lurking just below mm. the surface. I know it may not feel like water is much of a problem in New Zealand because there's oodles of it, you know, and it's falling out of the sky yes. all the time. But actually, uh, we are going to see in New Zealand that, and in fact, we are already seeing conflicts over water, you know, particularly to do with irrigation schemes, dams, yes. things like that. These are expressions of something that's going to get a lot more sticky for us, and that is access to uh, clean water. Right. Uh, and as a country that actually is fairly wealthy when it comes to our water resource, we're going to be in a situation where, you know, as a part of a, a, a world of nations, where many of them are going to be in extreme water scarcity. Mm. And so our water wealth is going to become a global, you know, it's going to become part of the global commons. And we've got to work out as a, not a, you know, a a fairly under-resourced country in many ways. Yeah. How are we going to respond to that? Big. It is. <laughs> it is big, yeah. It's why, I mean, it's funny. I mean, I kind of find it hard to engage in some of the day-to-day political stuff because, like, well, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, because this bigger issue. And so why is it that, um, and this is one of the questions I had, but why is it that, that the climate change, or I'm just going to call it, sure. can we name it? Would you call it climate change then if we've got these other issues, resource issues? or? Well, yeah. I mean, the problem is that these are all abstracts, right? So yeah. I talk about a resource crunch. Right. You know, That's it. Yeah. Um, in, the, in the sense that, you know, our numbers are rising yes. and our resources are dwindling and these are crunch. Yes. Uh, I often talk about climate change because it's a subject that everyone is at least vaguely familiar with. We can at least understand yeah, what you're right. talking about. No, that's, that, right. that's good. Um, why is, has this issue been so hard to, to try and get some change or commitment to change on, in, in your view? So, well, I think there's a lot of reasons. But I think part of it is because it has become very, very political. Right. And so it's become a kind of left-right 
you know, stick to beat each other up with. Actually, it needs Can't to... Can't we just action something? Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> that's right. I, I really think that we need to um, to depoliticize it and create a consensus mm. around it. And it, I always, I mean, uh, you know, we're always looking at the Scandinavian countries, right? Denmark has got a very broad political spectrum. Yes. Their, their, their kind of right-wing party is pretty radically right-wing. Their left-wing parties are pretty radically left-wing. And, you know, they've got a bunch in the middle. Across the board, there is a consensus that right. Denmark needs to lower its emissions and do something about climate change. So it doesn't matter where they are on a whole bunch of other issues. They've kind of collectively bought the science and said, we need to do something about this. And so whichever shade the government is at any particular time, they have a three or four decade plan to uh, you know, make a, a really substantial difference on, on climate change. In and place. I think we need to do the same. Yeah, yeah, we do. Yeah. We do. If New Zealand could really agree, and, and that makes so much sense to me and a lot of other people out there, would this give us an opportunity and, and an economic opportunity? I think it's huge. I don't have the kind of numbers to mind, but I know that the what people refer to as the green economy, yes. you know, clean tech, you know, renewable energy, so on and so forth, this is the fastest growing sector of the economy worldwide. Uh, it's uh, growing at a tr- tremendous rate. Um, there's huge investment uh, opportunities there, and I think that we're actually not not only is there an opportunity for us and we have many many things that we can export that are related you know that sort of fit into those kind of sectors but i actually think we're in danger of missing out yes by being kind of late to the party yeah right you know? yeah and and with our brand it just makes sense that we 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 should be or have been one yeah. of the first yeah that's right very, I, very I, frustrating it is, it is <laughs> deeply frustrating and i think you're starting to see segments of the business community going, well, hang on, this isn't good enough. So if you look at organisations like Pure Advantage and, yes. and so on, who are, you know, these are people who are out to make not just one buck, but many. Uh, and They're business people. They are, that, you know, yeah. They're looking at it and saying, look, we are in danger of, mm. not, of destroying the brand of, you know, 100% Pure NZ uh, and, you know, missing out on that opportunity, but also actually losing uh, some of our, uh, our markets. That's right. Rejecting nuclear weapons is to assert what is human over the evil nature of the weapon. It is to restore to humanity the power of decision. It is to allow a moral force to reign supreme. It stops the macho lurch into mutual madness. And for me, the position of my country is a genuine long-term affirmation of this proposition that nuclear weapons are morally indefensible and I support that proposition.